Well, welcome back. Um, I knew that when we came to the most difficult chapter in the most difficult <laughs> book in the entire Bible to interpret, that the remnant would be small. And we had a beautiful weather out today. And yet you've chosen to be here. But as a Calvinist, I would also say God chose you to be here. So um, I, I, I do look forward to discussing this really challenging passage together. I do want to say that in one sense, we have a better position than the people of Zechariah's day did. After all, they could only look at this passage looking forward, and we're able to look back. And so we can actually fill in some of the details from history of what we know actually took place. So that might be helpful for us. Nevertheless, it is a passage that begins with a poem, it ends with a poem, and it has a number of very difficult things in it. And so one of the things we're going to do together is simply talk through what do you do when you come to a passage where there's a lot of disagreement and the answer isn't necessarily right on the surface of the passage. But before we do that, let's go before the throne of grace in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and as a light unto our paths. And yet, as Peter said of Paul's letters, some of them have things in them that are hard to understand. And we freely confess there are aspects of the minor prophets, and particular of particularly of Zechariah, that are very challenging for us. And so we ask that you would stretch our thinking, that you would help us to think our way clear about what you're saying through this passage, and also that you would keep us... Um, from running down roads that would be unproductive for us. Uh, for we know that you desire us not to have that knowledge that puffs up, but um, that we would have that love that would build up. And so we ask that you would work that very thing in this uh, Bible study and in our congregation of your church. We ask these things in Jesus's name. Amen. Ooh, we got Silas too. Good, good, good to have someone we can call on if we get really stuck here, um, our resident expert. Um, would someone read verses one through three for us? I, I want to say at first glance, it's going to be hard to make sense of this, but we better get the text in front of us. It is a bit of poetry. Uh, let's listen to what God has to say, and then we'll try to sort through what we can make out of it. Verses one through three. I can do that. Thank you, Jason. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thank you very much. Um, would someone like to give us an exhaustive and detailed explanation of these verses before I ruin them for you? Anyone at all? Um, so the first thing we got to note, of course, is it's poetry. And actually, one of the things we should pay attention to in the Bible is poetry tends to be generalized. Uh, you'll notice this when you read the Psalms. Um, that is, Psalms may be inspired by specific events, but the language tends to be broad in general. There are some exceptions, but that's generally true. 
And one of the things that allows us to do is to apply it to many different circumstances. And that makes a lot of sense in the Psalms because the people of God have been singing them, uh, some of them anyway, for over 3,000 years, if you think about the Psalms of Moses. So um, there's some of that in here. And, and the thing is, is if we just took these verses, we could kind of do the what does it mean to you sort of thing, and we could talk about what these verses might have meant in 500 BC and in 300 BC and at the time of Christ and last week. But actually in Zechariah, they, they fit in the context. And the context should help us figure out when are these verses talking about. So maybe some of you just know this because you've been reading through Zechariah, but if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, where do you think this passage is in redemptive history? You're not going to get it just from the words of the passage, but where do you think it is in redemptive history, given that it comes after chapters 9 and 10 and before chapter 12? Eight years of seminary, I learned that about chapter 11. So where do you think they're taking place in church history? See, the Jagers weren't with us, neither was Pat, so they're at a disadvantage here. Okay, so we get to chapter 9, and we start getting very explicit prophecies about the coming of Christ. And then last week, when we looked at chapter 10, we saw this again about the cornerstone, the peg, which was actually functions a lot like a cornerstone to the holding up the whole building. We talked about from Isaiah 22 how it was messianic language that God was going to send the Messiah who was going to uphold the whole house of Judah and so on. And after chapter 11, when we go to chapter 12, and I know some of you have not read, read ahead, but in chapter 12, we're going to get to their look upon him whom they have pierced. That is, at least part of chapter 12 has to be after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection right, whether that's in the church age or it's at Christ's second coming, they will look upon him whom they've pierced. So where are we here tonight, roughly? Narrow the range down. Are we, we talking about the exodus and crossing the Red Sea? No. <laughs> no, we are not. But I was somewhere right before the, the destruction of Jerusalem or the time of Christ. or Yeah, Pat, I think that, that's exactly the right answer. Now, what, we, what we're going to see is, is if we think back to chapters 9 and 10, God was talking about sending his son, the Messiah, and it was good news. He's the cornerstone. He's going to build Jerusalem. Israel's going to be, the people of God are going to be lifted up once again. They're going to be blessed. And tonight God says, well, you know, there's some bad news in here too. We're going to see when we get to verses 4 through 16, maybe 4 through 15, depends on how you cut it why God is bringing bad news. But these opening verses are bad news. And I want to suggest, as Pat said, or just agree with Pat, they refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly before, um, right before 70 AD. Although in another sense, you could say after Christ's crucifixion, God starts bringing judgment on ethnic Israel. He brings judgment on ethnic Israel because they've rejected his Messiah, and it culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So let's just see if that works here. 
Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Where's Lebanon in relationship to Jerusalem? Jason pointed up. So <laughs> Lebanon is above Jerusalem. No, north. North. That is correct. Now, this is one of those places where we have a benefit over the people of Zechariah's day. I think realistically, all they can get is this is judgment language, right? God is saying there's going to be judgment. And Lebanon is famous for its very tall cedars. The idea is God's going to, you know, we get elsewhere in the Psalms, you know, smash the cedars and the splinters on the ground through his word. Well, actually here, God is going to smash not the wooden trees, but the Roman armies are going to come down from the north, right? So what you actually have here, if you go back and overlap and look at Josephus talking about the Jewish wars, is the Roman legions come down through the north, they conquer everybody, they surround Jerusalem, and they destroy it. There's some other details in here that'll be interesting to us um, about the faithful among God's people. But the clear thing is, is this is a language of judgment, the idea of fire coming out and destroying them. Now, sometimes cedars can in particular have a reference also to rulers, right? Not just the people. And we're going to see that plays out here. The shepherds are going to be judged. The leaders are going to be judged. But that's because God's also bringing judgment on all the people as well. And there's wailing. Well, we don't expect actual cypress trees to wail. But this is a judgment that God is bringing on his people in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, and there's going to be a great deal of wailing. Uh, then we have here in verse three, the sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. And so we're going to see when we get to verse four and following that there are bad shepherds. We've already seen a bit of that in Zechariah, but God is saying, I'm sending the good shepherds. There are bad shepherds. Those bad shepherds thought they were getting away with it, that they were able to build a glorious life for themselves in some ways. It's actually pretty crass the way Zechariah will describe it, or the Lord will describe it through Zechariah. But they are going to wail. They thought they were important. You know, we were the priests, we were the chief priests, we were the governors, we had positions of prestige, we had money. And instead of them going, look how good off I am, they're going to be wailing over their own plight that they are being brought low, right? The sound of the roar of lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thoughts on that? Keeping in mind, it's, it's poetic image. It's designed to kind of move people to go, I'm not sure exactly yet what this is, but it's bad. God is bringing judgment on his people in one way or another. Thoughts on that at all? You'll see that it gets filled in a bit as we move on to the prose portion of the passage. But I'm going to take silent is either agreement or not bitter disagreement. And we're going to move on to verse four and following. Um, I want to do this in smaller chunks. It really should read four through 16 or four through 15. Uh, but I just like to look at verses four through six to start with. Would someone read verses four through six tonight? I can do that. Thank you, Kristen. Thus says the Lord, my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, 
Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Okay, so verse 4 is where we get started here. You have to figure out what God is doing uh, with or through Zechariah. And he says, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So we have to figure out who he's talking to. Who's he saying become shepherd? And then we have to figure out who is the flock that is doomed to slaughter. Let's start with that second phrase. Who is the flock that is doomed to slaughter? The people of Israel. It is the people of Israel. And it's important to keep in mind here because there's going to be judgment language on the shepherds. But God is not just judging the shepherds. He's not going, good people, bad shepherds. I'm going to judge the shepherds and give them a good shepherd. We've actually already seen that in Zechariah, God saying that he was going to do that very thing. And he sends the good shepherd. But after the people also reject the Messiah, the people and their leaders are judged. Who is he saying um, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter? Who is that? I think you got two possibilities. Is that Christ? Christ is one of the possibilities. Let's get the other possibility on the table and see if we can sort them out. What's the other possibility? Is it to Zechariah? Zechariah. Now, Rachel, that's a, that's a great suggestion. Do you have a reason why you would think it might be Zechariah more than Christ? I'm going to come back. No. Yes, we don't have to split them. Oh, that's fine. We got the ideas on the table. Um, what we actually have here in Zechariah is uh, a type of vision where Zechariah is taking part in the vision, as it were. We see this um, a little bit already in uh, Zechariah chapter three, where Zechariah is shown a vision and that he participates in the vision. Here it's stronger. And so we've seen this uh, in particular, like in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel will act out a part. I think it makes good sense here, and this is what most evangelical scholars take this, is God is calling Zechariah to act out two different parts. And the reason why I think it's better than to say it's Zechariah than just Christ is Christ only fits with one of the two parts. Zechariah is going to play out both the good shepherd and bad shepherds in, in this, this drama, as it were. And yet, as he plays out that part, pointing to the Messiah, there's going to be a lot of overlap. That The, the words are really, ultimately, because he's just acting it out to teach the people, they're really ultimately about becoming Messiah. So if that confuses you, that's okay. You just kind of have to run that one through a couple times in your head and see whether or not that works out. And I think you'll see uh, that really works in this passage. Zechariah is not just prophesying. He's called to participate in some way in the vision. And in parts of that, that's clearer. In other parts, it seems we just get a little bit more direct vision in terms of prophecy. So. God says, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. How did the flock become doomed to slaughter? 
Was this just God's sovereign decree before the foundation of the earth that they were going to be killed? Well, yes, but by the means, right? By the by the means of the Roman army that's going to want to crush them also, right? Well, Pat, Pat, you're right. There is going to be means, and the means is going to be the Roman army. I want to suggest there's means on the other side, too. Okay. Yes, of course, in one sense, God has foreordained everything that comes to pass. But when he's talking about them being doomed to slaughter, they are doomed because they've rejected the Messiah. Okay, yeah, right. I think that's actually really important to keep in view. Now, we're going to see that they're already being treated badly by their own shepherds. They're under shepherds, right? Become shepherd, the, the shepherd, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. Who, who are those who buy them and slaughter them and go unpunished? Those who sell them and say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. Who are those people? At the religious rulers? Absolutely. If you just keep reading the verse, you see that because the next thing that we're told, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. So the shepherds represent both the civil and the religious leaders. You think Sanhedrin, high priest, certainly mm -hmm. the, whoever Rome's appointing at the time this is going on, the governors and so on. And those people who are supposed to be shepherding the flock of Israel. They look at the sheep as a way of making money, right? Oh, always be nervous about shepherds who, who like the taste of mutton too much. Um, and, and they actually are seeing this as a religious business. And by the way, that hasn't gone away after 70 AD. Yeah. About 2,000 years of church history, there are always people that come into the church who see religion as a means of advancement or gain, whether it's political or position or uh, sometimes money. Uh, you know, at the time of the Reformation and for hundreds of years before that, um, the papacy and, and those in the papal court, they lived like monarchs. You know, they had they have the great artwork because they spent all this money on themselves so they could be surrounded in the lap of luxury. This is not something that goes away. And if you look around America today, um, that's, I, I don't want to quite say evangelical, because not evangelical in the historical sense, but people that would be loosely held out as evangelicals are the very people doing this. There are pastors making millions of dollars every year. Um, let me suggest that's probably not a good idea, right? That, that doesn't really comport with the Bible very well. And um, so, so we should realize this issue doesn't go away, but God is focused on a particular time. And he's saying, you know, after the, the same shepherds who of course are unfaithful, they turn Jesus over to be killed. They're not looking out for the flock either. They're looking out for themselves. By the way, there's an interesting phrase um, uh, when a bunch of people in the crowd are looking um, to start, you know, following Jesus right before he's killed. There are people that are, you know, really rallying to him. Uh, when the um, military police come back to the high priests and uh, they talk about this, the high priests say, the ignorant people, the people that are untaught, that don't know what they're doing, they are going astray. And it's a really interesting phrase because it was their job to teach the people so the people wouldn't be ignorant. 
they don't even realize they're condemning themselves for their failure as shepherds when they say that. But the Lord says in verse 6, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. So he's not going to remove these bad shepherds and replace them with good shepherds. He's going to allow the bad shepherds to go on with their work. And then he's going to bring in, as Pat says, the Roman army and wipe them out. I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor. Now, that's even before the Roman troops get there. And we do have some record of this from Josephus that um, there was an enormous amount of division uh, among the Jewish people leading up to um, the the, uh, Jewish war with Rome. In fact, um, we're told that they even burned some of their own supplies while they were under siege. You wouldn't think about burning food, but it was like out of envy, people burned the food of that group over there. Zechariah was prophesying about that 500 years earlier. God says, I'm going to take away their hedge. I'm going to take away their tenderness of heart or the way I'm protecting them uh, from, from going at each other. And neighbors are going to go after one another. And of course, they'll be turned into the the hand of the rulers as well. They shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Um, By the way, apart from the Christians that escape, um, it is one of the most brutal, total destructions of any warfare in all of history. To read about the destruction of Jerusalem is is a, a difficult thing to do. Uh, I would encourage you not to do it if you've just eaten. It's it's a pretty graphically brutal experience. Um, thoughts on verses four through six. Applications from verse four to six to us today. After all, these things were written down not just for their instruction. They were written down for our instruction. What should we learn from verses four to six? I think that's a question for Silas. That's a question for Silas. That's mean. Um, what do they teach us about God and our relationship with God? But particularly about God. And Silas, you can answer if you like. You don't have to stay silent out of humility. It is dangerous to turn away from God's Messiah. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as the author of Hebrews says. And the other Hebrews says, look, you know, if, if people died for breaking the law of Moses, how much greater judgment will we face if we trample the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot as though it were an unclean thing? You have to remember that some of the things that people said, it jars me every time I read it. Think about the crowd when Pilate's out there washing his hands. What does the crowd say? Anyone remember? He says, I am innocent of his blood. Thinking they said that his blood be upon our hands. Yeah, it says, but his blood be upon us and upon our children forever. Yeah. And I, I that always just sends a, a, a jar down my spine. But God does, in fact, turn them over for judgment. We should remember for ourselves, um, who have been blessed with so much knowledge and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a full canon of scripture, that God is not a God to be trifled with. Or as R.C. Sproul said, you know, when he 
the first time he read through the Old Testament, he'd grown up in a liberal church. He never heard about the holiness of God or anything. And um, right after he became a Christian, he read through the whole Bible in like two weeks. And he says, I was reading through the Old Testament. One of the things I realized is this God plays for keeps, right? And it's against our culture. Most people in our culture, and it creeps into the church, kind of think of God as a cosmic Santa Claus figure who doesn't really care that much. He, you know, when, when you sin, he just kind of smiles knowingly and wants to slip a little treat to you or something. And that is not the God who exists. Would someone read verses 7 through 14 for us? 7 through 14. I could do that. Thank you, Jeff. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be a shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, knowing the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Thank you. So we start off here, and of course you could say this is the Zechariah, but here Zechariah is clearly referring to um, representing the coming Messiah. I became the shepherd of the flock, this is a flock that is doomed to be slaughtered, but when he starts out, what he does is he brings blessing, right? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. And so you have these two staffs. And by the way, um, we might miss this, but in the ancient world, it was normal for shepherds to carry two staffs. Sometimes we call one of them a rod or a club, right? They'd have that long one for like pulling the sheep, and then they have a shorter, heavier one. For, for beating away the enemies. And uh, we actually get that in uh, the 23rd Psalm. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, right? The rod comforts me because you beat off my enemies. The staff comforts me, right? Because you pull me back in. Well, here we have the Lord using this imagery of the two staffs and they're named. One is named favor. The other is named union. What does that mean? I mean, obviously, those are positive terms, but what does it mean? What is it was to pick favor? What does it mean that the, the, the first staff is named favor? And you can guess. Guessing is allowed. I would, it was, I would say it was God's favor on the people. God's favor on the people. God's favor on the people related to Jesus Christ in some way, perhaps. How about union? What's disunited that gets united? 
By the way, whatever uh, message you're taking will show up in some commentary or another. There are many views in this passage. Later, it says, you know, Judah and Israel. I think Judah and Israel is possible. Now, we did see last week an interesting thing referring to after Christ's death and resurrection, it was talked, uh, Zechariah talks about the house of Joseph and the house of Ephraim. The point there we, we talked about, and actually Jason's one of the pointed this out, is that the northern tribes have been destroyed and scattered in 722 BC, but they are going to be regathered in the church age. They are part of the people that are gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the kingdom of God, right? So we sometimes talk about the lost northern tribes, but they weren't lost to God. God is going to gather their descendants from them into his church. Um, I think, though, it's probably closer to their, closer to hand in their own day. Maybe you can tie these two things together. That one of the things Jesus is doing is he is actually separating the sheep from the goats. But on the other hand, he's uniting the sheep, right? There's, there's a un sense of union there. Jesus talks about his own ministry. There will be one shepherd and one flock. Right. And, and so that might be the idea here. And you start seeing that gathering taking place. It's not it's not completed by any means, but you start seeing that taking place in Christ's own ministry before he's put to death. So there are very positive images. At the very least, you can think of union in terms of harmony. Remember how um, we get at the end of um, that poetic section that we looked at is disharmony. Right. We, we, we have conflict there in terms of um, the roar of lions. And as we read in the last passage, God says he's going to turn um, each of them. This is um, verse six. I'm sorry. Verse. Um, yeah. Verse six. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And union at least has something of the opposite feel to that unity right? Peace, harmony, bringing them together. And so God says, I'm doing that with the Messiah, but I'm going to break them. That's not a permanent thing right away. So why would that be? He says, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed three shepherds. Um, I got bad news for you. One scholar counted 40 different interpretations of the three <laughs> shepherds. Um, I didn't count myself. I'm going to take his word for it. Um, do any of you have any suggestions? Footnotes in your Bible. <laughs> the, 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 the one that I like the best, which I, I certainly would not say is, is something to go with, but it just kind of works, is the idea of the threefold office in Israel that it wasn't actually referring to three individuals. It's referring to those people who had a prophetic role, the ruling role, and, and the priestly role in Israel. That kind of works for me. Don't know if it's true. Um, they could be three individuals involved, but if that was the case, there's no way that people in Zechariah's day could have known who they were either, because it's going to take place, you know, 500 years in the future. Um, so we're, we're kind of stuck a bit. By the way, an important thing when you're reading the Bible um, don't assume you can answer all questions, right? I'm not saying that there aren't answers to all questions. I'm just saying, don't assume that you can answer them. It's a useful thing to be able to say, I'm not really sure. 
and therefore not build a conclusion on it that's going to impact the way that you live, right? So if you're talking to your neighbor and you're going, listen, my life verse here is um, uh, Zechariah 11, um, verse 8. And uh, I'm really very focused on the destruction of these three shepherds. Um, I think you're kind of missing the boat. I trust none of you would do that. But then we have in verse 9, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. That's the break. For some reason, we'll come to it in just a moment, but for some reason, the coming Messiah representing the Lord, so they go together, right? You have the Lord as your shepherd. You have Jesus as your shepherd. You can't separate those two things. For some reason, with the coming Messiah that was supposed to be bringing good news, there's going to be a breaking and there's going to be a refusal. God is going to say through Jesus, I will not shepherd this people. Who are this people? Is he saying, I won't shepherd the church? No, he's saying he won't shepherd the people that are rejecting him. And we'll see that in just a second here. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left to devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it. Unknowing the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So what was the covenant? Would it be referring to the law, like the blessings and the curse of following the law or not? I don't think so, because he's breaking the covenant and that blessing would still be in force. It's true all throughout history. So people would be judged for not loving the Lord, their God, for not trusting in Jesus. But that's not a breaking of the covenant. That's an enforcing of the covenant. So I don't, I don't think that works. So you can't say that this covenant is either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, those big overriding principles. So what do you think the covenant might be? Is it referring to the covenant he made with the people that they were faithful to him, then they would live long on the land that he'd given them? So the problem with that, Joe, so I think that's along the lines that Rachel was suggesting. The problem with that is that would still be in place, but it would be enforced because the people aren't being faithful. So in that promise, he says, if you're faithful, I will bless you. Uh, you, you can actually think of um, um, the, the, the tribes being divided. You have them over you know, on Mount Ebal and they're chanting and one group is saying the blessings for obedience, and the other group of tribes is giving the curses for disobedience. Covenants enforce in that sense. I think this is actually a much smaller sort of covenant that we don't want to think of as a global covenant. It's actually the promises that God made with the restoration. He's saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you from those aliens, right? The Romans, the Gentiles, I'm not going to let them overrun you. And so it's that promise and God saying, yeah, I'm fed up with that. I am now going to allow those other peoples, in this case, the Romans, um, I'm going to allow them to come in and trample Jerusalem underfoot. Um, I guess it's possible there's alternatives to that. There have been a few suggestions and commentaries, but to me, that that makes the most sense of it. God is saying you can't do the, if you want to go back to the, the, the uh, last exile with Jeremiah, where people are going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? 
Remember, after all, Zechariah's day, the people are rebuilding the temple. You can't say we've got the temple, we've got God in our midst. We may suffer some persecution, but we're not going to be destroyed. God is saying, I'm not making that commitment. I'm pulling that back because I'm going to bring you into judgment. Thoughts on that? I do think that makes the best sense, but maybe someone else has a, a way of nuancing that or, or making that a bit richer. Guess I'm just struggling a little bit with God annulling or breaking a covenant. Mm. You know, when we think of God as being faithful to his covenant and keeping his promises and not breaking his covenants. So sure, that's a great thank you. That's a great thing to bring up. We should realize there's precedent for this in the Bible. So when we read Hosea, for example, and it's exactly the same issue. Um, God's relationship of a covenant is like a marriage. By the way, this is true of human beings. It's one of the covenant relationships we enter into is marriage. And you can't just walk away from a marriage. And God doesn't just walk away from a marriage. But one of the reasons that justifies walking away from a marriage and getting divorced is adultery. And so that's what we see in the book of Hosea is God says, I'm going to divorce. He actually uses that language. I'm divorcing the northern tribes of Israel because of their spiritual adultery with the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And that's the same thing that's going on here. The people have committed adultery and they've literally rejected the Messiah when he came. And so God is quite free. He's not being unfaithful to break off this covenant because the people themselves have broken the covenant in this very, very flagrant way. Does that help, sweetheart, or is that still troubling? No, I think it helps, but then it makes me think, well, are there things that I can do that would make God break his covenant with me? That's a great question. So you got to answer that question, or someone else can help you answer that question. I mean, I think from what I know is the answer is no, you know, that, that once God has put his, um, you know, his covenant love on me that, um, I'm sorry. God has put his covenant on um, He'll never let you go. That, 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 that he will, that he will, that he will hold me. Yeah. So, not let me go. Is that true for every single person in the church? Silas is shaking his head no. Is that true for every single person in the church? Only if they're, they're a true part of a universal church, not, not just a, you know, physically and, you know, making a profession that's not true to their true belief and they're not truly an elect individual. Yeah. So as I think what you're, we're getting at here is that there are some covenants that appear to be conditional with God based upon human behavior, but with the covenant of grace, it's not conditional. It's something that God's going to seal and make certain regardless of your conduct. <laughs> I'm going to tweak what Pat said just a little bit, since I'm writing a book on covenant theology that may eventually get done, um, is uh, all of God's covenants are conditional. There are no unconditional covenants that God makes with human beings in redemption. The key thing about the covenant of grace is not that it's unconditional, it's that God ensures the conditions are fulfilled. The condition for us is that we believe in Jesus Christ. 
And so the Holy Spirit causes true believers to continue to believe in Jesus Christ and to persevere in faith. That's why the the, uh, Reformed doctrine that talks about the fact that once God has put his, uh, regenerates you, he's going to bring you all the way home, right? You're never going to be lost. Not a single person who's ever born again is ever lost is called the perseverance of the saints. It's not because you work really hard at it. Oh, God does call us to work at it. It's because God himself, the Holy Spirit, causes you to persevere. He causes you to continue to believe. So it is conditioned on your continued belief. That's not true for the covenant community. I think, by the way, that's really the warning you get in Hebrews chapter six. It's not about believers falling away. It's about people in the covenant community who've experienced God's grace in the covenant community. Uh, Probably, in my judgment, they've even participated in the Lord's Supper. I think that's the heavenly food they've tasted. And yet, they can commit apostasy from that privilege and status. This is going on here. Every single ethnic Jew, they got, you know, all the men got circumcised eight days old. They are privileged. But that doesn't mean they've had their hearts changed. And God says they had such great privilege, those who then turn around because they don't believe and reject me, I am going to reject them. So I want you to see that that does not in any way cause us who are trusting in Jesus Christ to think, hey, next week I can back blow it, right? Because you can't, you won't. God, God will cause you to persevere in the faith that you have. The people that they're talking about here were people of privilege, not people of possession. And we'll, as we're going to see through Zechariah, there are people that in fact um, do not get destroyed because God protects them even in this great destruction in 70 AD. Does that help, sweetheart? Okay, that's a lot. Uh, that's a really important truth, though. So we, we, we really want to keep that one ahead of us. So we come to verse 11. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Right. So somehow in Zechariah's day, they understood this really was God's word, right? That God was going to do this some, at some point in the future. Then I said to them, hard to know who the them is here. It could just be a generic them, right? Um, I said to them, or it could be the under shepherds, the people that were supposed to have positions of authority. It's even possible that it's all the people. But I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. What's going on here? Is the Messiah expecting to be paid? Give me my wages for being a shepherd. No, the Messiah is not saying I really am a hireling after all. I'm only in it for the money. What he's doing is setting a spiritual marker out and saying, I've come as the good shepherd. How highly do you value me? That's that's what's going on. How highly do you value me? What's the significance of the fact that they value him at 30 pieces of silver? Does anyone know the Old Testament background for this? Um, in the in the Old Testament, um, wasn't that when uh, a slave, uh, if a, a slave was killed or gored by an ox, then thirty 
pieces of silver. And then that was the parallel to Jesus, obviously. I mean, for Judas. So that's kind of foreshadowing future or future prophecy also. But it looked, you know, to me, you know, he says a handsome price. Well, obviously, that's no handsome price for who we're talking about. So yeah, that, that's he's, he's being very sarcastic here. Yeah. And not in a, not in a nice way at all. Gary, you're exactly right. So the image here, this is a background is, is, you know, if, if your neighbor has a slave and your oxen gores them, you've got to pay the owner of that slave 30 pieces of silver to compensate him financially. And, and the Lord is saying through Zechariah, that's how people view the Messiah, right? The good shepherd comes my son comes into the world and people say, yeah, he's not worth any more than someone else's piece of property, as it were, someone else's slave. And so as Gary points out, this language here, you should hear it sarcastically. That's the handsome price at which they valued the son of God. 30 coins. That's it. Um, and then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. Well, the Lord doesn't want that filthy money. There was a bit of debate here about who the potter is. Uh, a potter literally could have just been a potter that made pots there. Um, some people have suggested, um, and, and there's no way to really nail this down, but these were like very minor officials in the temple courts that had tasks like making vessels. They needed them all the time. And so they were like, you know, um, the army has shoemakers. The temple had pot makers. And that could very well be it. And so the coins get thrown there. Why has that become significant in the life of Jesus? How does this actually get fulfilled? Is it because um, Judas by or the money that Judas got bought the potter's field? That's exactly right, Rachel. So we got to go back just a little bit here and say, First of all, you'll note that when the Lord says this, it's thrown not simply to the potter, it's thrown to the potter in the temple. So Judas betrays, um, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, right? Just like that slave, no big deal. And Judas has spent three years with him, right? Seen Jesus done miracles, listened to all his teaching. Um, and he said, yep, all I want out of this is a little bit of pocket change. Well, probably 30 days of wages, but still, you know, it's, it's a ridiculously um, a ridiculous price to be selling the son of God at. And um, Judas comes back to the high priest and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. Does anyone remember what the high priest say to him? The people working in the temple? I shouldn't say they're high priests. They were temple priests. What do they say to Judas when he says, uh, I've betrayed innocent blood? Here's the money back. I'm going to guess because I don't remember it very well, but I'm thinking I'm probably wrong on this. Is that where they said where it's, it's better for one man to die than for for the nation than for all to? Or, that's a, or, that, or am that's, I, I'm way off. Gary, if you can guess, that's a great guess. But in fact, it is incorrect. That's the I, I, I thought it might be as I started to say it. But yeah. Oh, well. No, no they, they, they say, what does that have to That's us. You see to it. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. They, they don't care that Jesus is innocent, but the guy who turned him in says he's innocent. They don't care. Yeah. And um, so the money just gets thrown into the temple courts. 
And then the high priest, they all of a sudden get a scruple over something. Well, we can't put this money into the treasury. It's blood money, right? So you think about this. This this is kind of like um, Jesus heals, you know, someone that's blind on the Sabbath day, and they're upset that he's doing work on the Sabbath rather than marveling over the fact that God opened someone's eyes, a, a genuinely messianic sign. And so here they are crucifying the son of God, but they have scruples over the money going into the the um, the temple money because it was used to is blood money, right? You know, in order to um, uh, to uh, be able to arrest Jesus, so um, they use it to buy a potter's field, uh, the place where the poor will be buried, right? Visitors that come to Jerusalem, they're poor people. Uh, they they happen to die there. They got to get buried somewhere. Uh, that's what this money is going to be used for. David, was there any significance in the number 30 itself? I'm thinking maybe not, but I don't know. Well, the significance is simply that it's the amount that was used for buying slaves. Yeah, okay. so um, uh, you'll see it's a little different with like Joseph because the, you know, the, the caravan uh, traders have to make a profit, right? So it doesn't do you any good to buy a slave for 30 pieces of silver and sell them for 30 pieces of silver and have to feed them in between. You don't make any money. Right. So yeah. if I remember right, Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver by his brothers and 30 pieces in, in Egypt. But I, I may be incorrect about that. But it's kind of the normal standard rate. It's the stated rate for, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Gary, for a uh, slave that is gored by an ox. Um, so th- that was the first one. And then we get here, uh, verse 14, then I broke my second staff union annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Uh, I think that simply points to the fact that there's going to be a great deal of faction uh, among the Jewish people after the Messiah is killed, right? Up, right, leading right up to the Roman um, uh, destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. And we actually historically have good records to know that that's really true. There was a lot of infighting that went on there. Any other thoughts up through verse 14? I know that's an awful lot. I want to encourage you, um, after you had some ideas jarred tonight, you go back and read this this passage again and see if it makes more sense to you. Also, read it in light of chapter 12 and 13. That will help. The other thoughts on verses 4 through 14. In the, in the gospel accounts, like Matthew, uh, Matthew connects it with Jeremiah, you know, not to this passage. Oh, uh, you had to do that to me. <laughs> what's the connection yeah so um there's a bunch of guesses about why jeremiah comes up one of them is is that it's common if you use multiple references that you attribute it to the more famous prophet so you see this in particular with like isaiah and they'll be like i think it's isaiah and micah is an example and that the, the pieces get merged together and it just gets attributed to the prophet isaiah there's actually another possibility here, which is naming the head of the book. So the scroll that Zechariah was on, um, the section of it may have had Jeremiah as the first book in the section. And, um, and you'll see that'll happen like Psalms can, can be used as a way of referring to a whole bunch of literature of which the Psalms are the first books. Those are the two main guesses. I don't think you can actually nail either one of them down clearly. There is not a quotation from Jeremiah that clearly fits with this. There is theology from Jeremiah that fits with it. 
but th those, are, those are the normal guesses of how that works. To the best of my knowledge, there are no um, good uh, alternative manuscripts, right? So you might get later manuscripts that will say Zechariah because a scribe went back and said, hey, we know he's quoting from Zechariah. Uh, but the early manuscripts, um, to the best of my knowledge, don't do that. So probably one of these other these other ideas. Anything else on verses four through fourteen? Okay, let's take a look here at the very end of the passage. I'm going to go ahead and read this verses fifteen through seventeen. Then the Lord said to me, "Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd." For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered his right eye utterly blinded. I think there's really just two things to see here, uh, either from our perspective or Zechariah's perspective here in Zechariah's day. The first is, is after the rejection of the Messiah, God's going to give the people evil rulers. It's actually one of the ways God judges people, right, is he gives them bad rulers. Although I will point out an interesting thing to keep in mind politically. I can't say this is always true of the United States of America, but I can tell you it's always true in Jewish history. If you start with um, uh, David and you go all the way up until the Babylonian exile, there is, there is examples of good kings and bad people. There is not a single example of good people and bad king. That is, the people can never say, why is God giving us such a bad ruler when we're trying to be so faithful? And maybe that's something we should keep in mind when we complain about our political rulers, I'm not saying it's guaranteed that God wouldn't do that today, um, but realize it very well may be that we get bad political rulers because God is chastising us for the way that we, the people, are behaving. That's actually what's going on here. The people are receiving a bad leader. I don't know if there's any good way to identify who this might be. It's probably just a general concept. Bad leaders after the rejection of the Messiah as God's judgment. But do you notice that God also judges the bad ruler, right? The, the, the fact that God is giving the people a bad faithless ruler doesn't mean the faithless ruler has a right to be faithless. We see that a number of times in the Old Testament. You know, God uses Babylon to judge Israel, and then God turns around and judges Babylon. Because Babylon didn't do it out of good motives, like they were trying to honor Yahweh. They did it because they were power-hungry people. And this wicked shepherd is also going to be judged by God. So the shepherd judges the people. It's part of God's judgment. And God judges the shepherd. Does that make sense? I don't know that you can say more than that, but maybe one of you could. Silas is shaking his head no. He's not volunteering anything. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. I, I do think that uh, while um, none of us would want to be worthless shepherds, we have two ruling elders on here, three ruling elders on here, and me. Um, and Gary is an ordained deacon. 
Um, we do need to realize that God does expect us to be faithful in our roles of shepherding God's people. Any other thoughts on the passage as a whole? Uh, you'll be happier to realize next week that chapter 12 is much more, well, is more straightforward than chapter uh, 11. Uh, Zechariah as a whole is a difficult book. I do want to reiterate one thing for you here, just to kind of get your bearings when you come to a difficult passage like this. You should look at this passage and say, what in this passage can I know for certain? So let me ask you that question. If you just read chapter 11 and you want to know one thing in the passage for certain, what would you pick up to be? It's kind of a mark. You can put a stake in the ground. What would that be before you start interpreting? What's the one thing you can know for certain? Do you mean like in general or about the passage? In this passage, there's something in this passage that you can say, I know one thing about this passage for certain, something that God is saying in it, that I can tell you what it means. God will deal with evil actions. That's a principle, right? So you're right, Pat, that's a principle, but I'm thinking something more specific. The particular, the particular waywardness of Israel. Okay, let me let me tell you that I know it's tough when I ask you to guess what's in my mind. Uh, <laughs> what you can know for certain here is the passage about the thirty pieces of silver, silver, because God Himself interprets that for us in the New Testament and applies oh. it to the Messiah. Right. Okay. So, so here's my point: is you can then take that as a stake and say at least this part of the passage is referring to Jesus Christ. We know when that takes place, right? Exactly. And then I go back to chapters 9 and 10, which I see they're pointing forward to Jesus. And I go to chapter 12, which you'll do, and you'll see that it refers back to Jesus as the one who was crucified. And you take this one stake and you stick it in the ground, and that's going to help you shape the rest of your interpretation, right? It's always good to be able to start with things that you can be sure of because that, that's not something you move around because you're wondering about what verse three means. Does that make sense to everybody? I know that sounds really simple, but it's actually a very useful thing to keep in mind when reading difficult portions of God's word. And I, I think, think David, yeah, I was, I think you're, you're right. Normally, like I would take that as far as like, if there's one thing, if I wasn't sure about what this whole ch chapter was about, at least, yeah, there's, if, if I took that one verse and said, well, I know what that verse is referring to because I can see the, what it's, how it's being interpreted in the New Testament. And that's why, yeah, it's a lot of these difficult passages. Um, if we don't have like quotations in the New Testament, it's going to be awfully difficult to, to really say absolutely this is what it's referring to. Um, but like I said, otherwise, getting our bearings and then the other context of other chapters. Yeah, it's really good. So, so that, that'll be really helpful. And you should probably assume that the other verses probably relate to it until you have a reason to believe it doesn't. And in this case, I think they clearly do. Why don't we stop there?